This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Warning. This podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature, not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Hey, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I'm joined with my ghoul friend, Jessica. Hello. Hello, hello. And today we are going to be continuing our deep dive into Ed Kemper. This is going to be our second half. If you happen to miss part one, pause and go back. In that first half, I talked about Ed's early life, including childhood his early murders, life after that, the co-ed killings, the death of his mother and her best friend, and then we ended where he made the infamous call of turning himself in. And so from here, Jessica's going to pick us up, and she's got all kinds of cool, fun facts. There was lots of questions about Ed's life after that and current stuff, so we're going to be answering that today. But before we get started, if you are new here, we want to say hello and welcome. And to returning spooksters, hello, and we love you. I will do a disclaimer. It is like 50 mile an hour gust winds and higher, so if you hear weird noises when I'm talking at all... <laughs> <laughs> it me. It's Alaska. So sorry. <laughs> Had to get that out of the way because I have no clue. I'm literally in my closet right now because this is the quietest room in the house. And this is like super OG because this is where I used to record when we very first started. And it's very weird feeling right now. <laughs> <laughs> But besides that, if you would like to hang out with us on social media, you can head to the link tree below or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle there is at Three Spooked Girls for all of those. We also have a super fun Facebook group if you would like to come chat with us about anything true crime, paranormal, or anything just, you know, fun going on in your life. And that's Three Spooked Girls official. And also, if you would like to support the show, you can head to our Patreon, which is, of course, in that link tree, too. And we are on patreon.com slash three spooked girls. Super exciting. We are out of our mini stickers that we were giving away. So thank you to all of our new patrons who signed up and joined us there in supporting the show. And we are now only eight patrons away from starting our new segment that Jessica and I are super excited about and all of our current patrons are super excited about. <laughs> Do you want to tell them a little bit about it? Because we haven't talked about it in 
months. <laughs> we haven't. No, we, we have not talked about it in forever. And I don't even know if we've put it on the main channel, if it's just been for our patrons. I can't remember. It's been a while. So once I realized we were this close, I put it on social in our time yesterday. So it's been a little bit. Oh, I meant like in general. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We briefly teased it, but we haven't full on explained it, I don't think. So I will let you do that real quick. <laughs> I'm excited. So if you've been a patron, not a patron, if you've been a listener of our show for quite some time, from time to time, we end up reviewing movies that are parts of topics. And I have, <laughs> I have been told, I should say, that I have a very entertaining way of just slaughtering a movie plotline. <laughs> and I take that as a full-on compliment and is super excited to continue that. So it's going to be a bi-monthly segment, which is entitled Jessica Slaughter's Movie Reviews. Yay! And it's like, you know, one of those like pun type things because it'll probably be a lot of horror movies. And it's for all of our $2 and up patrons. You get it bi-monthly. So the first segment of each month, I'm going to do a mystery plot. So I'm going to tell you the story, but not tell you what movie it is. <laughs> and then you can go and guess. And in the second one, you will be told what it is. And then I'll do like a regular movie review of something spooky or true crimey. Yes, yes. So excited. And I'll be guessing along with you. <laughs> right. Because Tara won't know. It's going to be so much fun. And it could be anything. It could be a Disney movie. It could be a horror movie. It could be a really great documentary. You don't know. That mystery one is going to be anything. And it's going to be told in a very ambiguous way so that you're not like, hmm, it's going to be different. And you guys are going to be so excited. I'm excited to do it. Tara has already been like, she's like, we're eight people away. Start getting your movies and your shit together, Jess, because we're going to like get that shit unlo unlocked. We're excited because we might record some soon and be ready to go as soon as we hit the 50. Yeah. So, yeah, we would love to have you guys come join us in that shenanigans. And on top of that, all patrons get a regular monthly bonus episode, which is same format for the most part as your regular episodes. It's just topics just for our patrons. Higher tiers also get stickers, swags, some get mugs, and then our $10 tiers, they also get a whole episode dedicated to them on any topic they would like. So if you would like to support us in our podcasting endeavors and you would like access to more content from us, just head on over there and check that out. Since this is a Part two, there is no new drink today. We did Lady Killer. You can go check on the socials or pop back over to part one if you want to see what that is about. But we are going to take our quick promo break and we will be right back. Hi, I'm Liz. And I'm Josh. And together we are Bloody Date Night. Bloody Date Night asks the question, can a whore expert show his whore novice? Who do you call it a whore novice? Horror movies that he loves and she's seeing for the first time. It's about what happens when you introduce the person you love to the thing you love and they're probably going to hate it. Just like me with taxes. We're Bloody Date Night. Give us a listen. <laughs> Get your headphones on and bebop time. All right. Well, welcome back, guys. I am going to hand it over to Jessica and we're going to dive right into part two. Part dos. Okay. So just a tiny little recap where we are in the story. So at this point in time, Ed Kemper has killed his mother and basically set it up so that he could escape by killing his mother's friend and making it look like they went on vacation together. I'm like taking her to dinner, talking really loudly about the trip. Mm -hmm. 
that they could take or something like that. And then he kills her and then jumps in his car, takes some caffeine pills. Rambo style has a bunch of ammunition and then just drives for three straight days and ends up in Pablo, Colorado. There he sat for a few days, mulling things over, realized that nothing is happening. I want to comment on that. Like, I think it's really interesting that he was so worried about getting caught that he turned himself in. Well, it kind of wasn't that. It was more, he was paranoid, but it was also that at that point he was just kind of tired. Well, yeah. Ed, you took three days worth of caffeine pills. <laughs> yeah, he was probably like <laughs> crashing fucking hard off these caffeine pills. But in part one, the quote I ended us with is what his explanation was for turning himself in. He said, the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time emotionally. I couldn't handle it much longer. Towards the end there, I started to feel folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, because you fucking have been up for a million years, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. So he was just spent is what his ed logic is, I guess. Right. No, and I think that has a lot to do with like his physical state with the fact that like, I don't know if anyone has taken like caffeine pills. No, I have not. But I have drank a red line before in my life. (laughs) (laughs) I've drank the little five hour energy. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't remember the name, but I'm like, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) She made like the hand size symbol with her hand. She's like, it's this. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um. I don't know if you know what Redline is, but Redline is this like super caffeinated drink. And shout out to Tara and I's friend Cameron and I, one fourth of July, we're like, we're going to stay up all night and shoot up fireworks. And we went over to this gas station, Valley Row. It's actually called Valera, but I'm pretty sure we were just annoying called it Valley Row <laughs> and bought a Redline and did not read the instructions and just chugged the entire thing and then read the instructions. Which clearly says that you're only to drink half of the bottle. Oh, I'm glad you're still with us today. (laughs) Yeah, no, we were laying on the floor with our legs like up on this like chair, like looking at each other going, if I die, you're dying with me, right? Like it was this moment of like, if my heart stops, your heart's going to stop. So at least we're together. (laughs) I feel like Cameron has been there for a lot of those moments in our lives. True, true. (laughs) Anyway. So I think that what it really says about his mental state is that like his mental and his physical state kind of combined Mm because he had to come to the conclusion that if he stayed on the run, eventually they would have found his mom. Someone would have done a welfare check. She worked. Right. Ed isn't going to blend in anywhere. No, he's not. (laughs) Now, unless he goes to like Sweden or someplace with tall people. Right. Like he's not going to blend in anywhere he's Mm-mm. six nine like as soon as they're like he's has dark hair and is six nine people like him right <laughs> found him him found him right so it probably seemed inevitable that he was going to be caught so might as well just turn yourself in i see that like if you're so tired like both physically and mentally you'd be like okay i get it mm-hmm. so what happened is ed calls the police in santa cruz and is like hey i killed my mom Or it's it's more like, hey, it's Ed. I killed my mom and her friend, and I'm in Colorado. And they're like, okay, very funny, Ed. Bye. And hang up. Because they're like, it's not Ed Kemper. (laughs) So finally, he calls back, and he's like, no, I'm going to stay on the phone with you. Go check. And they do, and and they realize that he has killed them. They find the note explaining everything. They call the local authorities. The local authorities come and get him. And then 
detectives from Santa Cruz County go get Kemper and they drive back. It takes them three days, but I'm pretty sure people are like switching driving. So it's not like Ed and they're not doing the caffeine pill thing. And throughout the entire time that they're driving for these three days, Ed Kemper does nothing but talk. He is talking in detail about all this shit. He's telling them everything from like killing his grandparents to being a the co-ed killer about how he practiced. He's telling them everything in detail and they're just like writing it down. And as they're going along, it's been publicized that they've caught the co-ed killer, that they're driving him back. They're on this route. So every time they would stop, there would just be like people around. And Ed was said to be wearing when he was arrested, like a leather jacket with fringe. So think like 70s hippie motorcycle and he would get out and he would like strut around and he'd look at people and you know and he was really excited that they were interested in him and taking pictures and he was very excited about the attention that this was all getting him i also think that this is probably not only because he's like being recognized as a killer which is kind of like the sick and twisted thing that killers like is when they're recognized as for it but also like this is the attention he never got Like, his mother made him live in a basement. His grandmother thought he was creepy and weird. So this is the attention that he was, like, striving for, and he got it in a really bad way. Mm -hmm. So the detectives thought that was odd, but he was behaving himself. Like, he wasn't trying to run away or anything. As soon as they get him back to Santa Cruz, Ed goes, is there media there? And they're like, yeah, but we're not going that way. Think Scott Peterson, the perp walk, like, the drive-in. These... Officers just went around to the back and they brought him in the other way so that the media wouldn't see him and everything like that. So they get him in. They start to book him. And because you have to like apparently didn't realize because I've never been arrested. You fill out information and you have to list someone as like an emergency contact in case something happens. Well, this is the moment Ed realizes he has zero people in his life. And so his (laughs) booking officer had to put himself down as his emergency contact if anything happened to him. Ew. (laughs) Uh, right which is interesting if you think later because i'm going to jump to mine hunters right now mm-hmm. like in mine hunters he puts holden which i'm assuming would have been john douglas at least in the story i don't know if in real life because i haven't been able to get concrete on this but he puts detective holden down or agent holden down as his emergency contact so it's kind of like you see that ed is really realizing he's all alone right So like they have to do, they sit him down, they start to interview him and he's, you know, having told everything. But none of the investigators thought they were in any kind of danger with Ed. They actually felt very calm and at ease around him because like Tara mentioned in the first one, to the police, he was a friendly nuisance. And like I think I mentioned, I think the police liked him more than Ed realized they liked him. Mm -hmm. In fact, investigator Howard Cartwright was like interviewing him and he couldn't turn his head and his neck was hurting. And Ed was like, well, you know, I studied anatomy when I was, you know, locked away in my mental institution and I could work on that neck for you and get you, you know, get you going. And like I said, you shouldn't do, you should not do this unless you're a trained professional. But apparently this guy was like, cool. He let a murderer do it. And I guess he understood anatomy enough to understand how to like manipulate his neck and spine enough to relieve the pressure. Investigator Cartwright said, like, I felt safe the whole time he was doing it. At once when his hand was on me, did I feel insecure or scared? That says a lot. It does say a lot. And it also is like, it shows 
how these crimes could have happened because even police were at ease around him. Mm -hmm. Full on fucking knowing because the dude has confessed himself what he's done. And so as they're doing this and they're like, okay, we need proof and everything. Ed was more than willing to help them. As the investigation went on, Ed took them to the dump sites throughout the Santa Cruz Mountains, different places, and was able to find the bodies of his victims. He took them to the gar- his mother's garden where the girl's head was. You know, like, was very easy to... He was very cooperative. And, like, detectives and investigators were just, like, mortified because it's like, here's this big, jolly green giant of a man. And he's like, oh, right there. And they dig it up and they found this, like, putrefying decaying head and like they're having a hard time processing how this person did this crime right so he was arrested on april 24th and booked and all of that stuff so on may 7th 1973 kemper was indicted on eight counts of first degree murder and because of the fact that ed gave such a explicit and detailed confession it was going to be really hard to prove he didn't do this So the defense had to and was forced to put in a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. I mean, it makes sense at this point that that's how you're going to have to go about this. Between his indictment and the start of his trial on on October 23rd, 1973, Kemper tried to commit suicide twice. Oh, wow. Yeah. There is a quote, and I'm I'm not going to like 100% quote it. I'm going to paraphrase it. But it's basically that Ed wasn't expecting to be around to be held accountable. And we don't know if this meant he was going to kill himself, which I kind of figured that's what he meant, or if he meant he was just going to be like gone. Mm -hmm. So like I said, the trial began on October 23rd, 1973. To try to get him as a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, he saw three court-appointed psychiatrists and they all found him sane. That's a lot. Like most big cases have like maybe one, possibly two court appointed. Yeah. Most of the time it's an expert brought in by the defense or the prosecution. But these were three court appointed. So one of the doctors who saw him on this was Dr. Joel Fort. And he's also the doctor who worked on Tex Watson as part of the Charles Manson case. Charlie keeps popping up in our fucking episodes. He popped up in Moundsville and he's here again. (laughs) I know, Charlie. He's just our... He's haunting us. I know he is. But, I mean, (laughs) it didn't make sense because eventually Kemper is housed in the same unit as him. So, Mm -hmm. true. But that's later on. Yes. So this guy is like the expert... Well, at the time, he was the expert witness. Later on, he's not so much the expert because he's a little crazy himself. <laughs> but he's the one who went in and like looked at like how the family reacted to Manson, like how Tex could be brainwashed, that kind of stuff. He also was involved in Patsy Hearst. He helped challenge the defense that Patsy wasn't brainwashed. If you know anything about the Patsy Hearst case, we can do an episode on her another time. But like, basically, she did some really bad shit. And then when she decided that she was done or she was captured, she was like, I was brainwashed to do it. When really, she one of the ringleaders. Uh, Okay. Yeah. He also is one of the first psychologists that came out saying that they should decriminalize marijuana because it was plugging up our criminal system. Hmm. But he did not live to see it. (laughs) (laughs) To see that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Fort even looked back into Ed's juvenile records and got the diagnosis. He said that he was 
psychotic. And the definition of psychotic is a person suffering from psychosis. The definition of psychosis is a severe mental disorder in which thought and emotions are so impaired that contact is lost with external reality, which kind of makes sense. Though I would say that he also is a sociopath. Yeah. I don't know when that term kind of came around. It may not have yet. Yeah. But he's definitely like a sociopath. Ed can definitely mimic like emotions. And and I know I say like human emotions, like he's not human, but like it's that he knows what people want to see. And then he mimics that so that he can be successful. And when he does. Oh, yeah. We saw that early on when he was a kid in Ascadero. So definitely. Right. Definitely. So. Fort was like, I really need to get the truth from this guy. So he ended up giving Kemper a truth serum. And according to Wikipedia, a truth serum is a colloquial name for any range of psychoactive drug used in efforts to obtain information from subjects who are unable or unwilling to provide it. The most like common one that we hear of is like sodium thipentanol. That's like in the Bonds movies. But according to the CIA website, There is no current drug that is proven to cause consistent or predictive enhancement of telling the truth. So it's really a crapshoot. Truth serum isn't illegal, but it is not considered a credible source. So like, it's kind of like how lie detectors, they're like, oh, it can't be admissible in court because, well, now people can't fake them because they've gotten really good. But back in the day. (laughs) Yeah, well, and it's also that thing of like, you're under the influence of something. So you're not of, quote, sound mind. So you're not sober. So I get that. Right. Like if you were hallucinating or something along those lines and then people are asking you questions, you might fill in the blanks, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But during the time that Fort gave him the truth serum, Ed supposedly confessed that he engaged in cannibalism. He said that he was slicing up victims' legs and cooking their flesh into casseroles. So he and Dahmer may have had some stuff in common. However, Kimber later recanted the claim of cannibalism. We don't actually know the truth on that. Mm -hmm. However, through all of this, through the talk of cannibalism, through all the rape talk, through all that stuff, Fort still found Kimber to be fully cognizant. So 100% sane. Kemper seemed to enjoy the fame or merely liked the infamy that the murderers were bringing to his life. He seemed to really relish in that. He was excited that people knew who he was and what he had done. So the defense basically had to prove that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. And it comes back down to the McNaughton rule, which is basically came around from this guy named Daniel McNaughton, who was acquitted of murder of the murder of Edward Drummond, who was mistaken for the UK prime minister. Basically, McNaughton felt jaded and was drove crazy. And then he went to kill the prime minister, but then he killed, I guess, a lookalike or someone who looked like him. I don't know. So it kind of became the rule or and or the standard in which all not guilty by reason of insanity cases had to, you know, there was like you had to tick off some boxes. The rule is formulated as a standard test for criminal liability in relations to mentally disordered defendants in common with the law. Kemper's defense was trying to still establish a defense on the grounds of insanity, but it must be proven clear that at the time he was committing the act, the party accused was laboring under such a defeat of reason from the disease of the mind 
and not know the nature and quality of the act he was doing. And if he did know it, that he didn't know what he was doing was wrong. That's kind of like a generic description of that rule, or that is the rule, I should say. And basically, you could know that you're committing a murder, but in that moment, you have to believe that it's not wrong. And Ed most definitely knew it was wrong. He went to secluded places. Every time he encountered an officer during this time, like he he had to give like some sort of an excuse to get out of it. Like Ed, like if Ed didn't think what he was doing was wrong when he pulled up in the car with the two women, like, you know, the one dying in the backseat and the one wrapped in a blanket next to him, Mm -hmm. he would have just been like, whatever. Sure. Search my car because there's nothing wrong in this car. But he most definitely knew what he was doing was wrong. Oh, yeah. Especially when they came and got that other gun from him. Oh, right. No, he knew. Like he said, like, I could be going away now. Like, Mm -hmm. That's where, like, that whole not guilty by reason of insanity kind of falls away for him. Kimber appeared to know what he was doing wrong and showed that he had signs of malice afterthought, meaning he premeditated this. Like, the night that he had that big fight with his mom and he killed his last two victims, he said, I was going to kill that night. It didn't matter who. It didn't matter what. Like, I was going to kill. When he killed his mother, he knew for an entire week that he was going to kill his mom. So essentially, he had premeditated a lot of his murders. And it showed that in the fact that he practiced runs of like getting people in the car. And then the case where the girls where he picked up but didn't kill, where he was taking them to their campus and they got on the freeway and he said like, you know, they wanted to go one way. And he was like, no, this this way's better. It's faster. It's like two exits up. And they were like, no, go this way because it's our way we know. You know, and he knew that if he got on the 580, he was going to keep driving to Palmaris Avenue or Palmaris Road and take them over there and kill them. Like he knew that. He had the wherewithal to be like, if I go this way, I'm killing them. If I go this way, I'm not. Oh, yeah. He's very methodical with everything. He knew what he was doing. It's true. So on November 1st, he actually testified and and he testified saying that he killed them for himself like he wanted them as possessions. So it wasn't like he killed them because like when we look at the son of Sam, like, you know, he talked about in his case that he felt moved by this like other power of, you know, the demon and the neighbor's dog (laughs) type thing, you know, like. It wasn't like that. It's not like with Jonestown, how people were killing people because they thought they were going to be resurrected again. No, what he was killing was because he wanted to own them and own their death. So Kemper kept trying to convince the jury that he was sane and that his actions could only have been committed by a person who had a mental illness. So he's trying to convince them, but at the same time, he's like, but I did this and I knew it was wrong. And yet I still did this. And I did this because of my mother. Like the reason I turned myself in is because my mother was dead and I didn't have to kill anymore because I was killing to like symbolically kill my mother over and over again, which I get. (laughs) It sounds weird and sounds like he had some sort of mental disorder in that, but he was far too methodical with it. He also stated that he felt like he had two beings in his body, one that was the killer and one that was not the killer. So like his normal everyday, like go to work, have lunch with friends, go have a beer with the cops. Like that was one guy. But then the killer was this other and he'd black out. But the problem is, is that if that was the case, he would not have been able to tell the police in detail about each murder Mm -hmm. because he was mentally present. 
And it's also like trying to project like a different type of mental disorder on this. And people who typically like black out or have dissociated personalities aren't violent because typically that has to do with like internal protecting yourself. And so typically most of the time with those, it's like self-harm, not like outward harm. So try as he might, Kemper was unsuccessful. On November 8th, 1973, six men and six women deliberated for five hours and found him sane and guilty. Kemper asked for the death penalty and requested that he be tortured because that's what he wanted. But because California had a moratorium placed on it in April of 1972, which was like literally a year before he turned himself in, like to the day, (laughs) they were like, moratorium. And he's like, ah, fuck, I'm a year late on this. (laughs) So he received seven years to life per count, and he was to serve them concurrently, which means like all of them at one time. So like right now, whatever it is, he's serving seven of them. So Kimper can be paroled. I would like people to know that. Like, Kimper can be paroled and is actually considered to be a model prisoner. The model prisoner part, I'm not too surprised about, considering what we've learned about him. (laughs) No. I'm going to go through and list all his parole hearings and stuff like that. So as of 1973, November 8th, he was sentenced, you know, seven years to life, that type of stuff. So he was first came up for parole. In 1979. What the fuck? Oh, my God. That's only six years after he went, like, he was arrested. He obviously was denied (laughs) parole that year. I think even at that point, like, even if he was, like, the perfect, perfect one, they'd be like, okay, this hasn't been long enough. Fuck no. And then he went back. He had a parole hearing in 1980, 1981, and 1982, all denied. Jeez. (laughs) In 1985, he waived his right to his parole hearing, which I didn't know you could do. I thought you just had to go. Hmm. But apparently you can be like, nope, I'm gonna fucking stay in. I'm good. Good where I'm at. In 1989, he was denied parole. And he said that society is not ready for any shape or form of me. I can't fault them for that. Okay. In 1991 and 1994, he was denied parole again. In 1997 and in 2002, he waived his rights for his parole hearing. In 2007, he was denied parole. And then at that time, Prosecutor Simmons said, we we don't care how much of a model prisoner he is because of the enormity of his crimes. Like, let's think about this. Like, he killed 10 people, like brutally killed 10 people. Yeah. But he's a model prisoner. Don't give a fuck. He was a model prisoner when he was in the state hospital. And uh, here we are. Exactly. So good for you, Prosecutor Simmons. Mm -hmm. In 2012, he waived his right for his parole hearing. In 2017, he was denied. He is eligible for parole next in 2024. He will be 76 years old and he will have spent 51 years in prison at the time of his next parole hearing. That's a lot. (laughs) Well deserved, though. Very much so. So he's imprisoned in the California Medical Facility, better known as CMF, and it's near the Cal State Prison Solano, and it's off the I-80 in Vacaville. And to put this into Tara's perspective, it's near the Sonic in (laughs) Vacaville. (laughs) So you're like, oh, (laughs) thick. Good to know. (laughs) It's very close to the freeway, people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like if you look at the map, you're like, oh, there's I-80. There's the Sonic. Oh, there's Kemper. (laughs) Oh, right there. Mm Mm-hmm. He was incarcerated on the same block, as we mentioned earlier, as Charles Manson. Mm-hmm. Kimber did not like the other serial killers in his block. <laughs> he did not like them. 
The thing is, like, we don't 100% know what he thought of Charles Manson because I don't think he ever said, like, what he felt about Charles. But there was one guy that he just did not like, and his name was Herbert Millen. And he just was like, fuck this guy. Also, it could be that it's a little bit of, like, a rivalry because Millen, or I'm sorry, Mullen, not Millen. Mullen was killing women in the same area around the same time. And he was like a serial killer slash spree killer. And like, we talked about that in one of our previous episodes. Mm-hmm. The difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you need it, go back and refresh. If not, it's really easy to Google. Yeah, it was on the the downtown posse. There we go. Yep. There we go. I was like, start to the D. Where is it? <laughs> so Kemper's relationship with Mullen completely shows you how manipulative Kemper is. Mind you, Ed Kemper, 6'9", 300-something pounds. Mm-hmm. Mullen, like, 5'7", average weight. I don't remember. Kemper said, Mullen had a habit of singing and bothering people when someone tried to watch TV. So I threw water on him to shut him up. Then when he was a good boy, I'd give him peanuts. Herbie liked peanuts. That was effective because pretty soon he'd ask permission to sing. That's called behavior modification treatment. Oh, Ed. Right? Like, holy fuck. Like, this guy is in, like, a state, like, Ed, you're manipulating other murderers. Mm Mm-hmm. I get that, like, he had a rough childhood and, like, he felt he was conditioned to be a violent person. But, like, we do not need... A man who can manipulate other serial killers in this world. Fuck no. He can stay where he's at and be there till the day he dies. Right. Because, like, really think about that. Yeah. We're talking, like, there are people out there who are serial killers that we don't know about. And if Ed got a hold of them, he could, like, literally... Yeah, because also there was that story on that guy who they were like, oh, he's in his 80s or whatever. He's old. Let's let him out of prison after he had killed somebody. And then he literally went and killed somebody else. And he was nowhere near Kemper's status. So just think about that. If they let Kemper out, doesn't matter that he's in his fucking 70s. Does not fucking matter. That would be the biggest mistake ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, seriously. I mean, I will say the only good thing that has come from Ed Kemper is the fact that we understand serial killers the way we do now, but he is good where he's at. (laughs) Yeah. Which, interestingly enough, Ed Kemper is in gin pop because he is a model prisoner. He has only had one violation in his time in prison in the 43 years he's been in prison. And it was in 2016, he had his first violation for failure to provide a urine sample. Interesting. Yeah. Ed has not just spent his time in prison or his medical facility in vain. He has done some productive things with his life, Mm -hmm. including recording over 500 hours of books for blind people. Yes. In all honesty, that's actually really cool. Like the fact that they took him and he was intelligent and was very well spoken and articulate. They put him to good use. Mm -hmm. In fact, he ended up coordinating that program until 2015. Up until the time they started it, until the time he ended up, he had recorded 5,000 hours. That's so crazy. Do you think they, like, if they say narrated by, you don't think they say his actual name, right? No. I read this a long time ago, and I will search for it because it's not in the notes. But I read it a long time ago, and they basically said that he's given, like, a stage name or a pen name. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think they... (laughs) 
I think even blind people know who Ed Kemper is. <laughs> like, he was on the news. <laughs> uh, I know. That was something I always wondered about that. So I'm glad you knew that tidbit. Which is interesting because I listen to a lot of books on tape. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of books on tape. And I've often been like, I wonder if this is Ed Kemper. Now it makes you wonder who you're listening to. <laughs> right. Also, California Medical Facility, you could probably make a pretty penny by selling recordings <laughs> of Ed Kemper reading books because there is the market for that shit. Ugh, yuck. Yeah. Like, you say yuck, but you would be tempted a little bit to be like, maybe one book. No, because I could just go on YouTube for the thousands of hours of him never shutting the fuck up. <laughs> oh, that's true. He does talk a lot. Which is why that job is perfect for him. True. He also did the scheduling for the inmates to get their appointments with the psychiatrist. He, he did that. And he also was known to be an accomplished craftsman with ceramic cups. Well, this all came to an end for Kemper in 2015 when he quote unquote retired because he had a stroke and was declared to be medically disabled. Mm-hmm. For some of you, you're probably, if this is the first time you're like, who the heck, besides listening to the previous episode, you're probably like, Ed Kemper, I know this dude. Well, it's because he is kind of one of the main bad guys on the show Mindhunters, which by the way, I am so fucking pissed if they don't come out with a third season. Like I have so many unanswered questions and I need, I need answers. Yeah. I quit watching season two because I read that and I was like, I'm not even going to finish. I'm not even going to invest. <laughs> So you have to finish. It's so good. Which, okay, can we just talk about, can we just talk about Jonathan Groff for a second? Like, <laughs> he's actually the voice of Kristoff and Sven on Frozen. But another fact that you may not have known, and I did not realize, he also was on Glee. What? Yes. I'm going to out myself as someone who watched Glee. Who was he? So do you remember like in the, like the very first season when like Rachel got the boyfriend from the other school? From the other show choir, Jesse. He's fucking Jesse. Oh my God. <laughs> I, okay. The only reason I know this is because I have admitted that I watched TikTok and I was scrolling through and I saw, mind you, when Glee first came out, I was all about Glee because I was like about the choir life at one point in time. So I was like, ooh, it's a great show. And then I was like, oh, it's not such a great show. It's really dramatic and stupid. But now I'm currently rewatching Glee because. I have a sick and twisted thing because like two of the actors are dead now that it's like, I feel like I kind of have to watch it all the way through. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Hopefully this goes away. <laughs> I do fast forward through a lot of the singing, though, being real here. But anyway, he's on the show. So I was like, holy shit, it's Jonathan Graff. You know, anyway, so he plays Agent Ford on Mindhunters. And I found this really great article that kind of outlines some points of what match the show in real life. Also, in our notes or in our sources, you definitely want to check out there's a video where they take Ed Kemper's actual quotes, his interviews, and they match it up with the Mindhunters. And they're pretty fucking on point. Like there's even one point where he's saying like the actor is actually saying verbatim the words Ed Kemper said. Oh my God. I'll have to watch it. Mm-hmm. It's really good. So, what Mindhunter got right. He was fascinated with death at an early age. Tara mentioned about the pulling the dolls apart, the killing of the animals, starting from small little bugs all the way up to cats, you know, the escalation process. And he was very fascinated with being dead or being put to death because they played the gas chamber and the death penalty game. So, that was interesting. 
we know that he killed his grandparents, which they talk about. Mm-hmm. And so, like we said, he fooled the medical care professions and his probation officer was even quoted to say, if I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting his history from him, I would think that we were dealing with a well-adjusted young man who had an intuitive intelligence and who was free of any psychotic illness. It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response to years of therapy and rehabilitation, and I see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be any danger to himself or any other member of society. And since it may allow for more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. Like, that's how manipulative he was. He straight up was like, it's cool, guys. <laughs> I'm a good guy. I have her head in the car, but let's do this. Right. Ugh, such the manipulator. Right. The other thing that Mindhunters got right was that he worked with other patients at Escadero State Medical Hospital. And this is where he learned how to attack, like how to kill women and attack them. Like he would talk to rapists and murderers and get their information. And so he was like basically making a playbook while he was there. Mm -hmm. And like Tara also said, this is where he learned like how to kill women how to attack them, what to do with them, like how to rape them. Because he basically was talking to these serial killers, these murderers, these rapists, and he was like filing it away, like in a little playbook, like this is how you do this. The other thing that they got right is we talked about he wanted to be a state trooper. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they got the part that he was involved with like necrophilia, cannibalism, and dismemberment. They talk a lot, the illustration that they use a lot about like the shit he did was when they talk about the the girl's head that he put like facing his mom's window because that seems to be like a pretty big detail. Mm -hmm. They also talked about that he killed his mother, that she was drunk, abusive, and a man hater. They talk about like the vocal cord thing where he tried to silence her, which is fucking twisted as hell, but like also very symbolic for their relationship. They talk about how he doesn't fit the mold of the traditional like psychopath that his IQ, like Tara talked about his brother or like half brother or stepbrother talking about how he would lie on the IQ test so that he would score lower, that they thought he actually had a much higher IQ, but he always scored around like the mid 40s to high 40s. They talk in this about how he's a sociopath, about how he mimics normal behavior. And he can do that because he's intelligent enough to understand what normal behavior is. And he knows exactly what each person wants. And he like it goes back to that like Mullen guy, how he conditioned him to stop singing in front of people. That's how Ed was doing with the world around him. Mm hmm. He talks about in there how he doesn't like other serial killers and stuff like that. Obviously, Mullen is the example. And they talk about, obviously, the whole point of Mindhunters is that Agent Ford, who in real life is Agent John Douglas, how they interviewed him and how they took all of that, all the information they got from Kemper. And they basically formed how now we we look at serial killers. They came up with the term serial killer or serial murderer. Like, this was all developed from the FBI's work. And Ed Kemper was like the unlock because he was so willing to talk to people. And I think that he's done so much to help law enforcement. Part of me wishes that, like, they would have let him become a police officer because I feel like he needed that structure. There were so many places in Ed's life where I think 
if other things had just worked out, he probably wouldn't ended up where he was. Like, if he had someone in his life when he was young who was paying attention and saw the abuse his mother was putting on. Because, like, in today's world, we see an abuse from a parent. Everyone is willing to step in and help out and, like, get the child away from the abusive parent. Back then, people just were like, well, that's his lot in life because that's his mom. Mm -hmm. And now that's not how it is. So if someone had stepped in, and taught him what real love was, he may have gone... We don't know what Ed Kemper could have really done. Ed Kemper could have, you know, he's very intelligent. He could have done a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. There's also the time where he went to his father. If his father had decided to love and take him in and and show him what a real man is, not a murdering crazy person. Well, he's not crazy, he's sane, but you know what I'm saying? Like, a murdering person, like, how to, like, handle his emotions. That may have put Ed on a better path. If his grandmother had been nurturing instead of, like, a browbeater. And I'm not saying that every person who's in this situation turns out to be a killer. I'm not. I don't think that's true at all. I just think that there were... A lot of things that could have gone differently in Ed's life. So that was my soapbox for this episode. I'm sorry. So yeah, so they, you know, and they talk a lot about how they build the model for like modern day profiling. One of the things that they do is in real life, John Douglas, Ann Burgess, and Robert Rustler, who in the TV show, it's John Ford and Bill Trench. They come together and they sit down and they basically form this questionnaire that they have to ask all of these serial killers to see what's in common. And this really helps. And this is where they came up with that, like the homicide triangle we've talked about before, which is the bedwetting, animal cruelty, and fire starting. No, if you're listening to this and your kid wets the bed, (laughs) they're not going to be a murderer. These are the three things that are were so common in all of them. And then they say bedwetting. They mean bedwetting like when they're 13 and know how to get up and go to the bathroom and do that. Not like your five-year-old who wets the bed. That's not what they're saying. Animal cruelty, obviously, it's the injuring and killing of helpless animals. And then the fire starting people like arson. So they basically said you had to have at least two of these. But if you had all of these, that this was pretty good characteristic for a murderer. Kemper taught them how to link serial killers together by thinking of not just by like location, but like what is similar about them. Like it might seem abstract, like how with Ed, he dumped bodies in different locations, Mm -hmm. but they were all dismembered bodies. So to the police, they were thinking these were two separate people killing because one is dumping bodies in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and the other one is dumping them along the coast. Like, these aren't the same person. This is a different, like, this is a different operation. And this is where they um, they talk about, like, the four categories, which is, like, the criminal enterprise, group causes, sexual homicide, and personal causes. And Kemper was definitely the standard for sexual homicide. He shows no empathy and Everything comes back to his mother. So when you think of when you think of people like you talk about like Dahmer, you talk about Ted Bundy, they're sexual homicides or that's the category they fall into because everything is sexually driven and all had shitty relationships with their mother. A lot of times it's either like projecting the blame of their mother onto this or it's that they love their mother. And it's it's also weird. 
So that's kind of how this connects. I would recommend watching the show. I know that they're talking about there might not be a third season. I'm hoping this will be like when Netflix tried to take friends away in 2019 and people revolted. I'm hoping that enough people revolt and are like, no, like, because it's such a good show. If you're a true crime enthusiast, it's definitely worth a watch. And that kind of wraps my spiel up about Ed. Ed is still alive. He is still at that facility. So if anything ever happens, Dad, we'll definitely let you know. Yes, yes. We are going to wrap things up since that's going to conclude Jessica's half of this. We hope you guys enjoyed our newest deep dive into Ed Kemper this time. If y'all ever have any requests into our deep dives, because I think we're going to try to hit one once per quarter, once per season, once per However, it stumbles upon us because, you know, sometimes there might be a little more often. Uh, You're always welcome to shoot us an email or DM with any of those suggestions. But yeah, that's really all we got. So we will see on Thursday for our next Stabby and keep an eye out on socials. There may be some extra content for you. We will see you guys then. Bye. Bye.